index was a eight yesterday. Can we ask everybody to please mute their lines? Thank you. Welcome to the Scots Today Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 26th of August, 2023. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I am from County Dublin in Ireland and I'm your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Johan N and Sue L. We ask that you please keep your microphones on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, you're eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, or you're driving, just please disconnect your camera. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts. And you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows afterwards, we don't record that. So please do feel free to answer, to ask Harlan any questions that you might have. We'll also post a link to the previous week's recordings and to the seventh edition, and we'll do that in the chat function. So we have a list of all previous week's recordings. So if you do want to listen to Harlan from the previous week, just click on that link mm -hmm. and you'll find over 150 recordings. So now we're going to turn over to Scottsdale in Arizona and good morning to Harlan. Good morning, Maria, and thank you for your service. And thank you to all of you who make this meeting possible. And thank you very much for the people who attend the meeting, because without you, I'd be sitting here talking to myself and people would think I was a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs if I did that. So thank you very much for attending. Um, before we get started, I do want to remind you guys that registration for the OA birthday is right around the corner. And the OA birthday is a fabulous, fabulous convention. It takes place on the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th of um, January, as close to January 19th as, we, as they can get it. Now, why is January 19th so important? Well, the reason it's important is because January 19th, 1960, was the very first meeting of OA ever, and it took place in West Los Angeles. So the OA birthday is a fabulous convention. We hope that you will join us. There will be information on the LA website, Los Angeles, Overeaters Anonymous website. And there's lots and lots of really special things that are going to take place that weekend. I guarantee you, you're going to love this convention. It'll be a game changer for you. You'll expand your God squad. You'll make new friends. You'll get to socialize with people that have this illness. It's a really fantastic time. And I'm hoping sincerely that you will attend. I know you're going to love it if you do. All right. We have been talking about the family afterwards. And one of the things that we are all part of is the lives of other people. As isolated as you may think, maybe you're single, maybe you live alone, maybe you feel, well, I just don't have a lot of close people to me. You'd be surprised. There are people who love you and care about you, and you probably love and care about people as well. And we are all part of a society. We're all part of a greater society. So it's very important that we take a look at this 
this chapter, and I'm going to do the very best that I can to illuminate this chapter, not just in what it's saying, but I'm going to take sort of a different slant with this chapter as I did last week and apply some of the stuff that we're reading, not just to the addict in our lives or the family member, but how do we best maximize uh, the, this information for ourselves. We're going to start on page 123 at the top of the page where it says, suppose we tell you, okay, where it says, suppose we tell you. So if, when I look at this chapter, or excuse me, when I look at this, this first sentence here, suppose we tell you of some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years, and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. So what I'd like to do before we go any further is I'm going to read you a paragraph from page 132 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And ironically, it is from this very chapter. So I'm just getting a little ahead of myself. And this is a paragraph that I read every single day. And I read this paragraph and I read this because it's very important for me to remember. And I have a, a, a step 11 buddy. I have a step 11 person. And we go through this every day. So let's take a look at the, at the first paragraph on page 132. And then we're going to go back to 123. And we're going to apply it. Hopefully, effectively, I'll do the best I can. It says here, we have been speaking to you of serious sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. When we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism, we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal. For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. Okay, let's go back to page 123. And now I want to apply it. Each and every one of us, whether we're anorexic, whether we're bulimic, whether we're obese, whether we're whatever we are, we did not come into this program on a roll. My friend, Larry Kay, he lives in uh, Naperville, Illinois, outside Chicago. He says, none of us come in here on a roll. We come in here not because things went well for us. We come in here 
amidst the pain and the hell and the torture of this disease and the wreckage that this disease brings into our life causes us such pain and misery and shame and fear and remorse that we cry uncle and we are willing and ready hopefully to do whatever it takes to recover. But the first sentence that we read in this paragraph, suppose we tell you of some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. Now we finished this paragraph, but I want to speak on this for just a minute. Last night, I was listening to a beautiful, eloquent lead by a person in this program who I have a great deal of admiration and affection for. And she was recounting some different things about her life as an almost 600 pounder, about 586, as I recall. And I was thinking to myself, I've weighed 586 twice once on the way up and once on the way down. Now, there are things which I know very, very well, like when my stomach would honk the horn in the car, where I had to deliberately break the track of my seat in my car so I could fit behind the wheel and drive my car. I know what it's like to sit in a room with people and my pants are so tight, I have to sort of, not sort of, I have to unbutton my pants so I can breathe. I know what it's like to be eating so much food that I can barely get up. I know what it's like to go to the bathroom and not be able to wipe yourself without a wall to lean against. I don't like getting so graphic, but it's important that I do. I know what it's like to be a laughing stock. I know what it's like to be a an object of ridicule as I go out into the world and children would laugh at me and adults would make fun of me in public places. I know what that's like. Now, is it important that I went through that stuff? Yes, but I didn't see it at the time. Why is it important? Because my dark past is used every single day to communicate the language of the heart to people that are still suffering to people that are in that position now that can't see a way out. And when we can communicate to each other the nightmare of our past, the secrecy of the bulimia, the pain of the anorexia, the shame and the pain and the horror of being morbidly obese, we can utilize that if we put it in God's hands. And what God will do with it is he will use it to help the next person. Now, does he use it for the purpose of information? Somewhat, but not really. What is the real purpose of this, of this experience, this basis of this base of experience that you have? The real purpose is not to give a person information. You don't have to tell me what it's like to split my pants. You don't have to tell me what it's like to go to the movies and not be able to fit in the seat. Here's what I need to know. 
I need to know that somebody, anybody felt the way I felt and thought the way I thought, and they recovered. One of my heroes is Clancy Immisland. I love Clancy and I admire him so much. And I'm so sorry that he's gone. He's at that big meeting in the sky. And Clancy Immislin said, and it froze a moment in time for me, and he said it many times on recordings, but he also said it two blocks from where I'm sitting at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. He said, when one alcoholic speaks to a second alcoholic, so that the second alcoholic's feelings of differences begin to subside. And the second alcoholic, because of identification, starts to take action after action after action after action that he does not yet believe in. This is the moment when recovery can take place. So we utilize in God's hands, we utilize our horror to save the lives of the next suffering person. And in so doing, we get to catch lightning in a bottle because the more you give away, the more you get to keep. The less you give away, the less you get to keep. So it is vital that we work the steps quickly to get to the point on page 89 where it says very, very eloquently, nothing, nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with another alcoholic. And what chapter is that from? Working with others. And that means that sponsorship is vital to my survival. Sponsorship is vital to my survival. Very important for me to remember. So it takes work to survive and to thrive and to, and to erupt as, an, as a recovered person who is living life to the fullest. Let's continue. I'm on page 123. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. Now, I want to talk to you about this paragraph. It's important that we talk about it. You know, I was told a lie when I was a young boy. I was five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12, whatever I was, 15, 18. And this is the lie that I was told. Lose weight and everything will be okay. Lose weight and you will find that everything will be okay. If you just lose weight, then the Cubs will win the World Series or whatever. And I found that not to be true. Here's what I have learned along life's path I learned 
that if you sober up a horse thief, you have a sober horse thief. I came into this program and I was 700 pounds and I lost 200 pounds. And I was mad. It was maddening to me. I was I was driven insane by this desire to shout at the world. Leave me alone. I've just lost 200 pounds. I'm doing the best I can. But at 600 pounds, at 500 pounds, at 510 pounds, whatever I was at that time, the world still sent me a signal that I was unacceptable. The world still sent me a signal that said, Yes, you've lost 200 pounds, but you're still obese. Then I lost another 100 pounds, and I was a 400-pound man. And that 300-pound in total weight loss took years. And the patience that I had to exercise was exactly why I begged God for death rather than life, because I knew that I had a long way to go. There's a song by Joe Walsh of the Eagles. And it's a song called One Day at a Time. I love that song. I never heard that song until very recently. I think I heard that song back in March, if I'm not mistaken, or April. No, I think it was March. And uh, I was in Chicago and I heard that song and it just changed my life. It changed my life. But he says in the song, there's a line. He said he thought it was too big a mountain to climb. And I believe that my weight, my compulsive overeating was too big a mountain to climb. The reason that I'm telling you this, the reason that I'm saying this is this. We have to trust God and keep working because when we lose weight, if we lose weight, when we gain weight, if we gain weight, if you're anorexic or you cease the bulimic behaviors, there will still be problems on the horizon. So you have to know in your heart that you have to exercise patience, not just with other people, not just with with other people, but not only do you need patience with God, you need patience with yourself. And the hardest person for me to forgive is myself in any given scenario. The most difficult person for me not to be angry at, disappointed in, just absolutely crazed with anger and and guilt and shame is me. I can forgive you. That I've got down to a science. But forgiving myself is often the most difficult. And I have oftentimes eaten because of unrealistic expectations. Here I am. I'm abstinent X amount of time. And the world still isn't my little oyster. Not everybody is sticking to my script. Not everybody is doing my bidding. Not everybody is walking around with a t-shirt that says, I I love Harlan. I think he's the greatest. He's the best. I don't know if that would all fit on a t-shirt, but you get the idea. But the bottom line is there has to be a point 
where I have realistic expectations rather than unrealistic expectations. Here is the unrealistic expectation. I'm going to take a headlong assault into the program. And in a very short period of time, I'm going to lose the weight. I'm going to recover and everything is going to be fantastic. Good luck on that. Good luck. Get back to me on that if that happens for you. Here's the real situation as I see it. I'm going to take a headlong assault into this program. And if I exercise patience and diligence and keep working harder and harder and harder in, in my program, then the riches, the miracles, the absolute wonderment of God will be exposed to me in a way that I could not dream possible. I could not dream some of the things that are the reality of my life. I am in areas of my life today, romantically, financially, uh, health-wise, different areas of my life that if you would have told me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is, you would have said to me, here's where you're going to be. I would have said, you're full of baloney. It's not going to be that good. It's not going to, does it take work? Yes. Do I work my butt off in this program? Yes. But man, I have a life today that's worth living. But I don't have a life today that includes instant results. I don't have a life today where it's quid pro quo with God. Lose X pounds and everything will be okay. When I lose X pounds, the one thing that is great is I weigh less and I look thinner. That's great but I still got to work at my business and I still have to work on myself and I still have to work on my relationship and I still have to work on my relationship with my friends. And I, you get the picture. You get the picture. So one of the things that will kill us is unrealistic expectations of the world. When I say the world, I mean people and you and me, and the unrealistic expectation of God, because there is a gestation period for the dreams we dream. There is a gestation period for certain things. And I've noticed in my life that oftentimes when I ask God for something, I get no, I get no sometimes because he's got a better idea for me. And sometimes I get a slow and sometimes I get a go. Yes, it's okay. Now, what is the one I fear the most? It's not no. I'm practiced at being told no. I'm not practiced at slow. I want everything now. One of the things that's very surprising is the hardest answer for me oftentimes to deal with is go green light. Yes. Because now what do I fear? Because I catastrophize in my head all the time. I fear performance. How am I going to screw this up? How am I going to sabotage myself? How am I going to 
pull the rug out from underneath me in this beautiful scenario. Now, why do I think that way? Because my sick mind and my active disease have done that on many, many occasions. Many occasions. I have taken defeat from the jaws of victory. Many times. I do not trust me in most scenarios as much as I trust God and others. And what I'm learning to do one day at a time is to know that I can rise above my penchant for self-sacrifice. I can rise above the saboteur nature of my crazy. I can rise above the catastrophizing and the destruction of my life at my own hands. And how do I do that specifically? By trusting God and doing the next right thing. So there is a specific formula in my life to give me the patience that I often need. And what is that formula? Trust God, clean house, help others. If I trust God, that's steps one, two, and three. If I clean house, that's four through nine. And if I help others, that's 10, 11, and 12. And God never abandons me ever, whether it's the go, the slow, or the no, he never abandons me. And I'm sort of like the guy who wrote a book and I'm sitting here waiting for, an, a, not a book, but an article. I'm waiting for the National Enquirer to call me to publish my article. And I, I'm, I'm here and I'm here and I'm here and I'm all nervous about it. And the Chicago Tribune the king of the newspapers in our town is trying to reach me to publish it. So I often focus on letting the good overtake the best. So when we have these instructions in this paragraph about how to deal with others, we must also remember that we have to deal with God and ourselves and others. Mika, thanks for posting that. Trust God, clean house, uh, help others. That's Thank you. All right, I'm back on page 123. We're going to go slow in this chapter. I, I, I wish I could go faster, but it just doesn't work. So we're going to go slow in this chapter. Okay, page 123. Father knows he is to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he shouldn't be reproached. In other words, progress means progress. We're not going to get to the destination instantly. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So we have to, again, understand the next right thing. Perhaps he will never have much money again. That happens. I'm not making what I made, you know, 25 years ago. No way. I'm, I'm making about half and I'm happy to do it. I'm going to make a, I'm going to do very well this year. For me, I'm going to do really well this year. I'm very happy about that. But I'm not doing even half of what I used to do. Of course, my nut was a lot different then too. But the bottom line is 
We just have to understand that God will take care of so much of what we concern ourselves with. Back to page 123. But the wise family will admire him for what he is trying to be rather than from what he is trying to get. What is that theme? What is that idea calling us to? It's something, if you listen to a vision for you, which gosh, I hope you do, we have been talking about this for days. In other words, in life, we have to look to give rather than get, to add rather than subtract. And when we look to add rather than what we can get out of a scenario, we're going to be okay. When we look to see what we can get from a person, what we can get from a scenario, what we can get from God and others, we're on the wrong track because it will never be enough. When I look to get, it's never enough. I've told this story in here a bazillion times. I was nagging my mother. The last thing I wanted to do was go to the drugstore and her doctor and go to this store and pick up the cleaning. That When I was a kid, I would rather be tortured. I'd rather have you... you you know, stick hot pokers in my face or something, then do that. Who the heck wants to go to the store when you're a little kid? Who cares? And I was nagging her. I wanted silly putty and I wanted baseball cards and I wanted an Ernie Banks card was what I really wanted. I screwed up. I had an Ernie Banks. I had an Ernie Banks card and I stuck it in the spokes of my bike with a clothespin. A lot of you younger kids don't even know what a clothespin is. Trust me, we used to take a clothespin and put it on our bike and, and the card would make a noise like it was a motorcycle. And that's what we used to do. And instead of going for one of the crappy players, I stuck an Ernie Banks card in my spokes. How dumb was I? What in the world was I thinking? If you don't know, Ernie Banks was the greatest Cub that ever lived. He's in the Hall of Fame. He hit 512 home runs, 2,880 hits. You know, so we could talk about Ernie Banks another time. And I love that conversation because he is also one of my heroes. I love Ernie Banks. But the bottom line is I wanted an Ernie Banks card and I couldn't get one. So I kept nagging her. Do you have a nickel? Do you have a nickel? Can I get a quarter? Can I get a nickel? Because baseball cards were a nickel and I would stick the gum in my, I'm not really a gum chewer, never was. I'm not a big gum person, uh, but you, you stick that gum in your mouth from the baseball cards. And for about three minutes, not even maybe three seconds, it's blissfully sugary. And then when it starts to lose its flavor, you could just spit it out, yucky poo poo. But I wanted that. And my mother looked at me on Lawrence Avenue. I could take you to that spot right now. I show you. She said, Azoigatus, my zone, Azoigatus. Gatus, which means it's always something with you. You always want something. And it took me decades to figure out because my mother was a little crazy, a little. My mother was nuts, but she wasn't stupid. You know, nuts and stupid are mutually exclusive. She wasn't stupid and she sized up the situation. And she, what she was telling me is as long as you always want something and you got to have this and you got to have this now, you know, I want what I want. I want it now or I want everybody dead. That's not going to work. And it took me a long time to figure that out. 
Let's continue. Bottom of page 123. Now and then the family will be plagued by specters from the past. In other words, debt, shame, penalties for some of the things we've done, consequences, situations like that, you know? So that happens. For the drinking career of almost every alcoholic has been marked by escapades, funny, humiliating, shameful, or tragic. Well, the eating careers do too. The first impulse will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. The family may be possessed by the idea that future happiness can, can be based only upon forgetfulness of the past. We think such a view, such a view is self-centered and in direct conflict with the new way of living. Well, we're going to read a paragraph this morning that is another paragraph that we read. I we read every day, and this is a paragraph that is very, very important, and it is going to um, again illustrate this. Okay, Henry Ford, who's not a favorite of mine, don't like Henry Ford. He didn't like me. I wouldn't like him. But anyway, you can look that up on your own because we're not going to discuss that now. Okay. Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is the thing of supreme value in life. This is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. How do you turn the past to good account specifically? You learn from it. When I was a little boy, my friend had a father named Gil. And he used to teach me a lot of things by repeating it in my head, the things he used to teach his own children. And this is what he would teach his children. It's okay to make mistakes. Try not to make them again and learn from them. And then I got into program and we took it a step further that the mistakes we make turn to good account when we use them with God's help to help the next suffering person. You see, if Bill Wilson couldn't get Bob's attention in Akron in May of 1935 by telling him stories of his own drinking, then we wouldn't have a program today. And the reason that a lot of you are sitting here, all of you are sitting and listening to me, whether you're listening on a podcast or you're listening live, you are here listening because someone related their experience of horror to you and you said, if they can recover, I'm gonna give this a try. Whether you were conscious of those words or not, that is exactly what you said to yourself, that if this woman, this man, this person, this whatever, you know, can recover, then so can I. I'm on page 124. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The greatest asset that I have today is my horrible experience in this disease and the experiences that I've gained in life and business serve me every day. You see, this is what I believe. Experience is not the best teacher. 
it's the only teacher. And until I actually knew what it was like to be in Lake Michigan, I didn't know how wet it was. Until I got up in, 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 on a winter day in Chicago, I didn't really know how cold Chicago was. Get the picture? Until I woke up one day and I experienced a day of abstinence. And it sucked, but it was not nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then another and another and another because I worked my butt off and another and another and another. And then one day I was able to look you in the face here on Zoom and I am able to say to you, this boy has over 24 and a half years of abstinence. I have almost a quarter of a century of abstinence. I could never get, I could never imagine that. I couldn't imagine how someone has three days of abstinence because the thought of going three days without Gino's East pizza or without ice cream or without whatever was unimaginable to me. And yet the reality of it is this, here I sit 500 plus pounds lighter than those early days and so much better off. I can walk three miles without stopping. I couldn't walk three blocks. I couldn't walk three, I couldn't walk 50 feet without it hurting. I am alive and I am viable financially. My bills are paid. I wrote a lot of bad checks in my life because I didn't have any money. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I don't do that anymore. I'm above board. I lead a life of integrity today. I lead a life where I don't do things every flipping day that make me mad at me. Lying to myself, shaming myself. I like me now because I do self-esteemable activities. I'm proud of the work I've done. And you deserve that too. It's not just for me, it's for everybody. And when you like yourself, your whole world starts to change and it grows and it gets bigger and better and more colorful. It's okay to like yourself and it's okay to like God and it's okay to recover. You don't have to worry that it's going to go away because sometimes I fear that too. I was having a conversation. Sometimes I think I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and it's all going to be gone and I'm going to be, you know, 500 pounds again or six or whatever. Sometimes I get scared too, but what do I do? I contact someone else and talk to them about it. And I hear some of the most comforting words in the English language. Two of the most comforting words in the English language are me too. And I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people who have that same fear. 
because we're so used to being saboteurs. We're so used to everything good going away that it is beyond us at times to conceive of not only are things going to stay good, they're going to get better. I'm going away on Friday. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to do some really good things, I hope, and fun things with someone that I adore. I could never have conceived of that, but it's now reality. Now, what am I going to do with it? That's the challenge. What am I going to do with it now? Am I going to ruin it or am I going to make it as good as I can make it? And how do I make it as good as I can make it? By working on me. And when I work on me and I'm a healthy me, that means that the relationship has the best chance that I can give it. And when I learn more, I do better. You know, it takes me a while sometimes, you know, because I'm way behind most of you when it comes to this stuff. You, know, you guys, you, know, you learn stuff at 20, 25, whatever. And all I knew at 25 was when you get to Geno's East, you know, order the extra cheese. It's really worth the four, four or five dollars for extra cheese. That's what I learned when I was that age. But if I just work on me, which I do, then everything else has the best chance possible. Let's continue. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family. And frequently it is almost the only one. I have a house. It's not fancy. It's not, it's, it's not house beautiful. It's not any of those things. It's a very modest house. I have a car. It's only a few years old, but it only has 14,000 miles on it. And I have some money in, in, in you know, the business account and I have a savings account and I have a, a CD and I have another account where they take the mortgage out of so on and so forth. But the most valuable thing I have is a way to help other compulsive overeaters. And God is in charge of everything else. God's in charge of everything else. Now, this next paragraph was the one I really wanted to read to you, but I didn't because I knew we were going to read it now. And the, the, the place that I wanted to read it was in these horrible things, these horrible things are of maximum value. And this is another paragraph that I do read every morning in my step 11. This paragraph is a favorite paragraph of mine. And I got turned on to this paragraph by a very wonderful guy who used to be my sponsor. He's no longer with us, not my current sponsor, who many of you know. He's gone. He's at the big meeting in the sky. And he encouraged me to read this paragraph. And I started reading it a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And this paragraph is of maximum importance to me. Let's look at it together. I'm on page 124. This painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. 
Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, this the dark past is the greatest possession you have. That's the second time on this page I've been told that when the big book wants to teach me something, it uses the best teacher experience. But what else is the best teacher? Repetition. Repetition is the best. The key to life and happiness for others, with it, you can avert death and misery for them. Isn't that what it's all about, guys? Averting death and misery for the still suffering? Let's look at the last sentence that we read again. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. Some of you have lots of money. Some of you have very little money. Some of you have lots and lots of years in front of you. Some of you, not so much. Some of you are tall and some of you are short and some of you are whatever you are. But no matter what you are or what you're not, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. How did this book get your attention? By talking to you about all the all the uh, wonderful things that happened in the lives of Bill Wilson and Lois? No. Did it get your attention by telling you about all the money that Bill made on Wall Street? No. No, not at all. It got your attention because it related things that you could identify with. Because every one of us, as we go through Bill's story, we ask ourselves two questions. Do I think like Bill thinks? Do I eat like Bill drinks? And if the answer to those questions was no, Maybe you're not a compulsive overeater. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I'm not here to diagnose you. But I absolutely relate right down the line how Bill thinks and how Bill drinks. And in Bill's story, I see the progression of the disease. And I also see the destruction of his attitudes toward himself. He comes out of the war and he's gonna be the head of vast enterprises. And on Black Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, he's laughing. He's very derisive about the people that are committing suicide. And by page seven, six, He's seriously ideating, ideating, thinking about suicide. He has suicidal ideation. He's going to drink the poison in the medicine cabinet. He's going to take his mattress downstairs, lest I suddenly leap. So here he is thinking about killing himself, and that's where the disease took him. Do I relate to that? You bet I do. So do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. I better stick around. Let's last paragraph on 124. I don't read this every day, but I really love this paragraph. 
It is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. Now let's take a look at that sentence because I just laid on you a lot of reasons to, I, to use your past as a method of identification to the newcomer. But here's a warning. I'm going to give you the warning. The book has just given you the warning. If you're going to relate these things as a way of feeling sorry for yourself, as I have done, if you're going to relate these things in a way that is counterproductive, you are going to hurt yourself and hurt others. So like anything in your quiver, it is not just that you have that arrow in your quiver, it's how you use it. So if you use it to flog somebody and they say, I wrecked five cars and you say, I wrecked 10 cars and you one up them out of ego driven madness, that's counterproductive. If they're going to say, I had whatever, and then you up them again or whatever, or you criticize them, now you're being counterproductive. So you have to do the best you can to identify ego as it seeps into this and ask God for help. Because on my own, I cannot remove ego from my life, but God can. So what am I going to do? I'm going to trust God, clean house, help others. And when I do four through nine, I'm identifying my character defects and the behaviors. You know, a lot of times I have to write out, I'm really angry at so-and-so. I really feel jealous. I really feel inadequate. So what my sponsor taught me to do years ago, same one that I'm telling you about that died, he'd say, if you can't get in touch with anything in your inventory, write it out in prose. Write it out in prose. Write a dear God letter. Tell him, I'm mad at so-and-so. I'm whatever. And then he'd say, okay, we're going to go over. And I do it to this day. I'm going to go over every sentence and identify the defect of character that drives that home. So here I am, I'm jealous. Well, where does jealousy come from? It comes from fear. Fear that there is no abundance in the world so that I can have good things too. Now I'm angry. Well, where does that come from? It comes from resentment. So we're going to look at that. So a lot of times if I can't identify in my in my uh, uh, um, inventory, I write it out in prose as I was taught. And it's very, very effective for me. I write Dear God letters all the time. And when I see that I'm just one-upping you, so let's say you only weighed 350. Well, I could have put you in my, my pocket, but that's not the point. The point is, do I relate to some of the, not some, a lot, all the pain of someone who weighs 350? Yes. So I have to, I have to gear my conversation away from ego-driven crazy. Well, you only weighed 350. You must not be much of a compulsive overeater. <laughs> That's not very productive. That's not very productive. That's ego. God would have me say, that must have sucked 
When you weigh 350, the pain of weighing 350 is immense. I'm so sorry. That's productive. So again, if you're using these things from the past in a way that is devoid of self, devoid of judgment, devoid of ego, you become highly effective. If you use them in a way that is ego-driven, where you're going to one-up the person, or you're going to say, well, I just don't identify with that. You don't have to say those words. You can give that message without saying those words. You are going to do damage. Sponsorship is God's work. I don't have to tell you how many times it says in this book, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I don't have to tell you how many times it says that if you are in trouble, work with another alcoholic instead. I, I don't have the time to, to go over that. But you all know that. Let's continue. For example, we know of situations in which the alcoholic or his wife have had love affairs. In the first flush of spiritual experience, they forgave each other and drew closer together. The miracle of reconciliation was at hand. Then under one provocation or another, the aggrieved one would unearth the old affair and angrily cast its ashes about. So one of the things that's very difficult for us, we see that in other people where, you know, they start talking about the past and they, that's usually, that's not going to be too counterproductive. I mean, that's not going to be too productive. That's more counterproductive than productive. You have to stay in the moment. You have to stay in the now as best you can. So when we do that with ourselves, so yes, it's important in our interactions with other to stay in the now, but what about our relationship with ourselves? Do I have to relive in fourth grade, Mrs. Davies class, I split my pants? Do I have to relive that when I had Miss Summerhill in third grade, that I cut one and everybody was laughing? Do I have to relive that? No. No, but I don't have to use it either as a way of flogging myself in, in the here and now. That was almost 65 years ago, or it was 65, something like that. I don't have to flog myself with that now. I can move on from there. Let's move on in the, in the next paragraph and then we'll be done here. A few of us, I'm at the very bottom of 124. A few of us have had these growing pains and they hurt a great deal. Husbands and wives have sometimes been obliged to separate for a time until new perspective, new victory over hurt pride could be rewon. In most cases, the alcoholic survived this ordeal without relapse, but not always. So we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. What is the reason that I'm bringing this up to myself? What is the reason I'm bringing this up to another person? Is it productive or is it counterproductive? We have to be careful. 
we have to be careful and we have to treat ourselves with the kind of respect that we need to give one of God's children because you are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And not only do you have a right to be here, you have a right to live in harmony with God and yourself. And the way to achieve that is to work the steps and to the very best of your ability, follow the dictates of a higher power. When I am in charge, Katie bar the door because it ain't going to be pretty. When God's in charge, it is more beautiful and more harmonious and more unbelievable as, as time goes on. It is beyond my wildest dreams. So when we follow these instructions, it is very, very productive. When we don't, we get our egos in the way. We can hurt other people. We can discourage them from recovering. You know, just on the subject of God alone, you got to be so careful you know, you say the wrong thing. You know, somebody says, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or I'm, and you're, you know, derisive about it. You can hurt them. You can hurt their chances. Whatever you believe or whether you don't believe, whether you're Jewish, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're born again, you're Muslim, you're Buddhist, you're Baha'i, whatever the heck you are, we honor that. All that's required is a willingness to believe. You don't even have to believe. A willingness to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. And as long as you're willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself, we assure you that you are indeed on your way. So this is areas that we need to look at these are areas where we can, we can, you know, vulnerability in bridge. I'm not a bridge player, but I learned this from a bridge player. I don't know how to play, but this is what they told me. When you are vulnerable in bridge, it has a double meaning. It means you can make great losses. You can sustain great losses, but you can make great gains. And in life, one of my examples is the turtle. You know, my favorite reptile is the turtle. And the turtle is an interesting study. Here's what the turtle teaches me. If the turtle stays in his shell, he is immune to attack from his natural enemies. But if he wants to eat, make other turtles, swim, recreate, you know, whatever he wants to do, my favorite turtle was Yertle the turtle. But the bottom line is, is that um, the only ones that are laughing are the people that are around my age, because the kids today, they don't know who that is. But anyway, uh, the bottom line is, is that um, Tudor turtle was pretty cool too. When they swim and make other turtles and eat, they have to, to locomote, to, 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 to become ambulatory. They must come out of their shell and now they can be attacked. So while they stay in their shell, they're safe, but they can't live. 
while they're out, they can live, but they're not safe. Interesting conundrum. He's my teacher, the turtle. The turtle is my teacher. So in closing today, I wish we would have covered more ground. We didn't. I'm going to be near Poop Park next Saturday. We will be doing Big Book, but again, very near Poop Park. We, I will be uh, very near that, and I will be in uh, Arlington Heights, Illinois. But the bottom line is for today, I hope that what you've gleaned out of this is a knowledge, not only how to approach a person who is recovering, but how to approach a person who's just starting out or coming out of relapse. But one of the most important things that doesn't get talked about very often in OA is how to apply this information to your relationship with yourself. Because essentially there are two permanent relationships and only two in a life. As close as you may be to a spouse, as close as you may be to a friend or a sibling or a child or what have you, there are only two permanent relationships in your life. The one you have with God and the one you have with yourself. Everything else is transitory. Everything else is transitory. So these two relationships, God and yourself, when you work with one, you improve and work with the other. How do you work on your relationship with yourself and God? Working the steps, being in recovery, and doing self-esteemable activities, helping others, being kind, not lying to others, not lying to yourself, not doing the things to yourself that you can see very obviously are making you hate you. These are very important things that we learn over time. Okay, before I turn it back over to Maria or I turn it over